0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a very interesting story crossed our radar this week. China-backed creepy Port Project in Cameroon leaves locals frustrated. And this is a story that's been a recurring theme of the China-Africa story over the past, I'd say, at least 10 years of these real tensions that exist, particularly when China emerges in countries where they haven't been as active or as visible as in, say, South Africa or Kenya or South Sudan. And Cameroon's one of those places where, although the Chinese have been active for many, many years, uh, the Creepy Project is an example of the cross-cultural tensions that emerge, and they happen on lots of different levels. And what's interesting here, it's very difficult to figure out who exactly is to blame because both sides say the other is responsible or the other is not understanding what the situation is. That's one issue that we're going to talk about today. But it's another important point that I want to bring up, Covis, is from the fact that we don't seem like we have evolved very much over the past 10 years in terms of resolving the tensions that do seem to exist between Chinese and Africans uh, across the continent.
1: Yeah, we're talking not we we're, we're actually not talking about Chinese people doing bad things in Africa. We're not talking about people smuggling ivory, for example, or you know people uh, rogue gold mining in Ghana, for example. Uh, we're talking about projects that would usually you know, that African countries would be very glad about infrastructure projects or housing projects that then end up going wrong somewhere in the communication and where Chinese and African stakeholders just see, just aren't on the same page. They just can't seem to actually connect and communicate.
0: And I'll say a big part of the responsibility for that does fall on the Chinese, uh, in part because they come to, to African countries. Oftentimes they don't speak the language. They don't oftentimes know about the local cultures. Uh, they don't understand the diversity that we, that exists within uh, a single community, tribal, ethnic, religious, all of these. They come in oftentimes very unsophisticated about international business, international development, as this is the first generation of Chinese uh, that have ventured overseas for the most part. Uh, and, and so I put an extra burden because they are the ones who are coming to a foreign land, just the same way that Uh, I feel that I have a burden here in China to adapt and to better understand so that it's not the local culture adapting to me, but it's me adapting to the local culture. Uh, And before we get started, Kobus, I'd like to share an anecdote from a discussion that I had uh, actually at Witts University a couple of years ago in Johannesburg. And I was sitting at a table for lunch with a Xinhua reporter, uh, a reporter from China Africa magazine, again, another Communist Party controlled magazine paid for by the Chinese government. And a number of Chinese diplomats, I think, were were also there and Chinese reporters, and they were complaining about the press coverage that they get. And they say that the Chinese are always maligned when it comes to uh, coverage. And they felt, you know, just almost a little bit like Donald Trump feels a little bit like fake news and it's not fair. And I kind of turned to them and I said, it's your fault. It's 100% your fault. And they looked at me and they said, you know, they're not really that accustomed to people speaking so directly and criticizing. And I said it with a a little bit of a smile, but it was absolutely true that it was their fault. In part because if you are a Chinese reporter or if you're an international reporter, an African reporter, and you want to engage the Chinese consulate or embassy or a Chinese company for an interview, uh, good luck. It's super hard. Uh, and it's, again, it's not something that is, is, is preferential treatment given to Chinese reporters. It's just as hard for Chinese reporters as it is for Western reporters. And I told them, I said, I guarantee you that if I was on deadline and had to engage the U.S. embassy in Pretoria, they would have somebody before my deadline to comment. And I promise you that if I was trying to engage the Chinese embassy before my deadline, there is no way. I would need letters. I would need permissions. I would need all of these different protocols that had to be followed in order to get an interview, if I was even going to get an interview. So that's the topic we're going to talk about today, in part because we saw a story that ran uh, late last year, How to Tell a Better China Story in Africa. And it comes from a distinctly Chinese point of view, and that's what we thought would be interesting to look at today. Uh, It was published in the Global Times newspaper. And for those of you not familiar with Global Times, it's one of China's more uh, ambitious, aggressive, nationalistic, Uh, Newspapers, and they're often talking about uh, China being misunderstood in the world, but at the same time they're much more proactive in telling these types of stories about what needs to be done. And there's even a hint of self-criticism that you don't see in Chinese media coverage. It was written by Huang Hongxiang and Huang Ye or Zoe Huang uh, from China House in Nairobi. Uh, China House, for those of you who are not familiar, is a NGO, a nonprofit group that's been started up by Huang Hongxiang uh, how how would you say maybe five six years ago, and yeah, and five six years ago, and it was built on the premise of helping Chinese and African relations and corporations uh, kind of work better together, and particularly in areas like conservation, and now in student exchanges. So we are thrilled to have joining us from China House Nairobi, uh, Zoe Huang or Huang Ye in Chinese, uh, co author co author of the partner of this of this article, and also she's a project. The Actually, correct me if I'm wrong, you are a project researcher and the development director at China House now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, so Zoe, at the top, I spent quite a bit of time setting up the many, many, many tensions that do exist. I mean, there is a great story uh, to talk about over the past decade of Chinese engagement in Africa, but there are difficulties, and this is something that you at China House uh, work with companies and you work with governments and you work with uh, various stakeholders to identify and to talk about and to discuss, and you raise some of these issues in your article, which was published in Global Times. Um, why don't you give us kind of an overview about the China story in Africa and with the premise of your article about how to tell a better China story in Africa?
2: Like uh, for China House, we serve as a bridge between Chinese people and uh, uh, like Africa and help Chinese people to integrate into Africa. So we can see that uh, from the like the one road, one belt, the policy, more and more Chinese companies and Chinese people are integrating into Africa. They did a lot of business here in Africa, but we can see there is uh, a problem. Like for me, I I I think Chinese people you you must know the Great Wall in in China, right? But I'm thinking like in Africa, the Chinese people is also like building a Great Wall. They they live in the house, they eat in the house, they like they are having their friends in the house, but they never communicate, they never talk to the people outsiders. So for the uh media,s they just try to guess what is happening like in China. So I think we are we, still facing some challenges in communication.
1: Zoe, can you break down that problem? Why are Chinese people so shy to speak with the outside world, especially in Africa? What are some of the main reasons or the main factors that are contributing to that situation?
2: I think uh, one of the big reasons is the language. Because for now, for those Chinese people who are integrating into Africa, most of them are like at the age of four, like 30, 40, even 50. So most of them can't speak quite good English. That's one of the main reasons why they don't want to talk to local people because most of the time they can't really express themselves well. And another problem is like the cultural thing. <laughs> I, I I think Chinese people are more like uh, having friends with their own, so with the Chinese community is quite ex- exclusive. So Chinese people are having friends within the community. That's also the reason why they don't want to talk to outsiders.
0: Well, I mean, I'll disagree a little bit there because we've talked <laughs> to Chinese reporters in Africa, yes, who who complain about the same thing, and there is no mm-hmm. language barrier. So these are reporters from Phoenix and from Xinhua and from other agencies where they can't get access either. And I I just – my experience is that there's not a lot to be gained in their perception from talking to the press. And and as a result, because they come from a country where media is tightly controlled, highly regulated, where there is a process for engaging the media that is very different than in the rest of the world – And I think Chinese companies and politicians and embassies and organizations and NGOs struggle mightily when they have to go outside of their comfort zone. And when they go to the United States, to Africa, to Europe, and there's a totally different media environment, they are bringing over with them their traditional view of media engagement, which is one where they can control the process. And it's not working. Um, You talk about in your article – how to tell a better China-Africa story, Um, you you know, you quoted some people, you know, the Chinese always say China-Africa is win-win cooperation. We are brothers. I don't know whether it is win-win and who are the brothers they talk about, said John Bailey, a South African reporter. And I think that really is part of the problem is because it's so difficult to speak with Chinese stakeholders in Africa that no one really knows where they stand. So give me your feedback on that and your discussion with John Bailey when you interviewed him
2: yes i think that's also one of the uh, one of the reason which caused this problem like when china integrating into africa when we are doing some cooperation in most cases we are cooperating with local government like are, they are doing a big business they are cooperating with the government so they don't talk to local communities
1: um how do you then advise them to improve that situation
2: yes i think this is the one of the respect we need to improve like um there is an old chinese saying it is called uh in english is the less trouble the better because uh, chinese people t- just want to avoid as much troubles As they could, so they try to communicate with the government instead of communicating with local community, communicating with local NGOs. So, like from my aspect, my my advice is like Chinese people need talk to more talk more uh, with local communities. They need to make friends, individuals to local people. That's I think that's the the way they need to do.
0: So when you tell that to Chinese organizations in places like Nairobi, what is their reaction? Do they say, "Yes, we definitely need to do that. We're going to work harder," or do they shy away from doing it? What's the response when you talk to different people about this?
2: <laughs> yes, when I talk to people about this, they um in most cases they they are a little bit shy. And uh, maybe at the uh, at the moment when i'm talking to them say you need to uh, communicate more with local media they they are answering me that we, we yes we will do it but then when they are doing some activities even some good activities they just they consider a lot before they invite local media to come because they just don't know what the local media will do what well, they will report so after a lot of consideration they may just like refuse this advice
1: so is that because if the local media reports negative things about about them who gets in trouble? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, do do the do the local uh, do the, the the people of the local office get in trouble with their, their bosses in Beijing, or you know, kind of like who who will like if, if there's a negative story being published about a Chinese company in in an African newspaper, um, what what is then the chain of blame or the, the consequences for, for the the people at the company?
2: Um, not even the local offices will, will have bad influence. The headquarters in Beijing also will get bad influence.
1: From, from the Chinese government? Or, or from, like how, how will the head office in Beijing be affected?
2: Because I, I think the power of media is really great. Even something happens in Africa, in the China, the media will know it. So the headquarters of that company in Beijing or even in other places in China, will also get some bad influence. So, so that's the reason why every time we, when the local offices in Africa, when they are considering whether they want to like uh, accept uh, the interview from local media, they need to report it to the headquarters in China before they get the, before they get the reprovement of the headquarters in China. They won't accept uh, the local media's interview.
0: And there we go. That is the crux of the problem. Because what ends up happening is that process can take two to three weeks, if not more, to happen. And journalists and media, they don't have the patience for that, particularly in this day and age of social media. So what ends up happening is that they try to get an interview from a Chinese source. And Cobus, you and I, we get approached by journalists all the time who complain bitterly about not having access to Chinese sources. And they say to us, can you help introduce us to people who will actually talk? And because they they knock on the door and these letters go back and forth to Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen and they get approvals and they're waiting for approvals. And what ends up happening is they say, "Ah, forget it. We're just we're going to move on without the Chinese voice in this story. So what ends up happening here is that there's a void that's created. And in that void, they will put in other people to comment on the China-Africa story, many of whom are not as favorable uh, to the Chinese point of view. And thus, we have the kind of disproportionate amount of negative coverage of the Chinese in Africa, as I mentioned at the top of the show. So, you know, I'd like to kind of close our discussion here uh, with, with a sense of is there a generational change going on here? So the older generation and the more traditional companies play it very, very safe. Now that Tencent and Alibaba and there's a whole new generation of tech companies coming into Africa from China, uh, Ofo, for example, is coming in, there's a new generation of young people like yourself who are there, uh, who have a very different approach to the media in terms of the fact that, well, no one really pays attention to newspapers anymore anyway, it's all about social media, so they might be more responsive. Do you see anything changing in how Chinese stakeholders in Africa are engaging the press?
2: Yes, I'm seeing many changes between the different generations. For the old generations, they um, they really they really need to report those uh, like those in, in invitations to the headquarters in China. But for the younger generations, they have the advantage of language. they are also more t- tolerant, so they they could. Make friends with local people. They could share what what is real in China, and uh, for for the younger generations in the like in companies, they are more open to the media. They want to communicate. They want to share. That's I think that's the difference.
0: Zoe Huang is the pro- is a project researcher and a development director at China House in Nairobi, Kenya, and she wrote an article with the founder of China House. Nairobi or China House Kenya, uh, Huang Hongxiang, How to Tell a Better China Story in Africa. It's available in global times. I highly recommend it, in part because really understanding the Chinese point of view is very, very difficult. And they, again, make it difficult on themselves because it's so hard to get that Chinese voice. And here we have two young Chinese really calling out for more engagement with local press, for Chinese in stakeholders in Africa to learn th- about the local languages, the communities, the cultures, and in many ways, assigning the burden on the Chinese side to do more. And it's really this kind of discussion that is so important. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much.
0: I think it was so interesting what she said about the generational divide. And, and that's going to be a very important trend to watch in the coming years here because the way that the previous generation of Chinese stakeholders in Africa have engaged the media I think is going to be very, very different. And one other aspect that I'd like to get your take on is the way that the Chinese think about Africa is changing now in part because of popular media here in China where movies like Wolf Warrior 2 from last year registering almost a billion dollars at the box office – are very are having a very important role in shaping public perception about Africa and I wonder if that will change how in all the way in Africa how people engage the press and the in, in, in the communities what's your thoughts on that
1: it's a um, I wonder what I'm thinking about this actually um, because in the first place Wolf Warrior 2 itself was was criticized a lot among others by people who focus on Africa within China uh, for portraying Africa in, as a set of stereotypes essentially and I mean we unpacked that in an earlier episode so I'm not sure how much that itself will change it um yeah, I, I think I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic in terms of in terms of how this is gonna go. Um because I feel that there's something that, that the Chinese companies are not getting um in in Africa which is that they are they're stepping into a situation where there's already a narrative about them running um so the narrative being that Chinese people would love to make money out of Africa but that they're actually too racist to engage with actual Africans um you know to put it bluntly um and the problem is you know the, the, this problem that you highlighted um where the you know there's there's two weeks of back and forth about who's supposed to comment and then the story had already been published and the company that was criticized, you know, ended up only responding with no comment. That story strengthens that narrative. Um, and it's it's a hard narrative to fight back against, even when you are very engaged. What the, the Chinese companies that I think are doing the best with this kind of thing in Africa are companies like Huawei, who simply localize themselves and then get the entirely African spokes spokes staff. You know, um, so their are whole their um, advertising people, their are corporate communication people, they just hire Africans for it. Um, and but that's easy to do if you're a big company, a big corporation. It's harder to do if you're like a, a, a small and medium sized enterprise run by a little family or something. In that case, it, you know, like even even if your son is, for example, I'm just making up a family. Even if those, if if the younger generation is, say, twenty five percent more engaged. This is a, which is a big jump for a, an immigrant population in Africa. I'm still, I'm not sure whether that e- even that does the job.
0: A couple of different things I think that really matter in terms of putting this in context. One, it's not like the Chinese are behaving differently in Africa than they do say in the United States, Europe, or even here in Asia. Uh, This is a consistent problem around the world. Uh, In the United States, we, we see this over and over again where Chinese companies run into problems and have an inability to engage the debate. I mean, for example, you don't see people from Chinese companies, either Westerners or Chinese, getting on to CNN, getting on to CNBC, engaging in debates in the same way that you do from other companies around the world. The spokespeople are really shackled in what they can do and how they can engage the press. So this is not uniquely an African problem. One other issue that I want to take with what Zoe said, and I think you alluded to it as well, is there's this perception that the Chinese um, are not assimilating and not and are walling themselves off, they eat their own food, they read their own newspapers, they watch their own movies, they speak their own language. I got to tell you, as somebody who is, is a white guy who's been living around the world in Africa, in, here in Asia, um, it ain't that much different with white people. And so I always find it a little bit ironic that Westerners and Europeans would criticize Chinese for not assimilating. And yet I see, particularly in the NGO world and the corporate world in Africa, who they, you know, all these white people living in their compounds, eating their own food, they're not assimilating any more than the Chinese are. And so I think it's just a burden of foreigners being in a different country where you don't speak the language, you don't have the relationships, you don't understand the local customs and culture. So naturally you migrate to people who are like yourself and in all transparency that's kind of what I do here in Shanghai as well. Most of my life would not be construed as being assimilated. And so I think that's a really unfair burden to put on a lot of first-generation migrants, myself included, um, that were somehow going to be fully assimilated into a local culture that we don't necessarily understand. And I've been living in China going back and forth now for 30 years, and yet I still am not assimilated and so I think that is, I, I don't know, I just, that's been one of the things that's bothered me in this debate for a long time.
1: And African cultures, you know, the, the multitudes of them are, are impenetrable in the same way that Chin, Chinese culture is impenetrable to, to outsiders. You know, it's different languages, it's, it's complex Massive mythologies that no one that no one gets taught in school. It's, it, it's it's a whole it's a whole bunch of very complicated kind of cultural markers that we just don't have access to frequently. Um, and I mean, I am this living proof of it as someone who grew up in South Africa and because of racist structuring of the society and you know the the entire tragedy historical train wreck that is South Africa, I, I still don't have access to them. Um, you know, so it's. It's it's not it's not a thing that you learn in an afternoon. But the the fact that I think that 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 is such an issue in Africa is a testament to how inflamed and unhappy Africa's relationship with the outside world is. And you know some of that is just. The, all of that is just a reality. That's just something that 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 people who want to do business with Africa needs to take into account. They need they, it's 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 a difficult thing that you need to try and to overcome. It's like you know that that you will always be resented for not integrating enough. That that's just part of the part of doing business here.
0: So if you want to see how this very issue that we've been talking about for the past half hour is playing out in the real world, uh, go to Deutsche Welle, that is the German public broadcaster, at dw.com. Search for the article, China-backed creepy Port Project in Cameroon leaves locals frustrated. And so many of the different issues that we have talked about on the show today are are coming up in this project. And I am sure that anybody who's listening to this program in Africa who's engaged various Chinese stakeholders has at one time or another come across uh, some of the difficulties. Some of that is the growing pains of just the relationship, and some of it is really endemic inside the Chinese culture In terms of how they engage communities. And they're bringing over a lot of their own values where they don't engage communities the same way that other people do in other countries. And this is all part of the very complex learning curve that I think a lot of people have to go through in order to improve their overall engagement in places like Africa. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, We're going to continue this discussion on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter. It's something that, as as journalists and as media scholars uh, for Kobus and I, we are, we're very, very passionate about. And we'd love to hear what you have to think. So please do join the discussion. Until next week, we'll be back again with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.